0: However, within the first 48 to 72 hours, the checkpoint was compromised by a suicide explosion. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian
1: war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've
2: made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on the own. I, mm-hmm. job, I
0: did feel a lot of regret.
2: My friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite do often. Do I lead under fire. And that
0: was a heavy responsibility,
1: I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to scroll up. you itself is horrific. It's a horror story. You should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. What, what you can do for yourself or what can you do for your country? The you volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the land. Gareth Gardner served in the Royal Australian Armoured Corps deploying as a driver to Timor-Leste and Afghanistan. He transitioned from digger to officer, becoming a tank commander. Gareth spoke to Thomas Kay about his military service, his love for teaching and instructing, and the work he's doing today with Veterans Employment Program Company, with you, with me.
2: I'm Thomas Kay speaking today with Gareth Gardner. Gareth, welcome to Life on the Line. Hi, Thomas, it's a pleasure to meet you. So let's start things off at the beginning. What can you tell us about your upbringing?
0: I came from a a largely military family. Uh, My father uh, served in the Vietnam War, peripherally from Australia, uh, supporting as an intelligence analyst. Before that, uh, my grandfather was in the Navy uh, in the Korean War. So there was a a bit of a a family history in the military. And since I uh, signed up and joined the military, um, uh, two of my three brothers have also signed up and served my upbringing as a as a family was mostly boisterous with three brothers, so four boys in total, and we grew up on a farm. And I think I think the army was a natural call to adventure for all of us.
2: When what started that conversation with um, the uniform with yourself and your father, your grandfather?
0: Yeah, um, I, I think both my father and my grandfather were actually pretty repressed on their military service. They had uh, difficult experiences, uh, mostly because of the time. Uh, my grandfather. Uh, strongly suffered PTSD as his experiences in the korean war and my father was pretty close about his experiences of the of the vietnam war um, so it was probably that almost that that secretive uh nature as well that i think was an appeal for me and i first uh i, I found uh, a, a resonance with the military when I joined army cadets uh, as a as a young teenager in my high school
2: was army cadets sort of that first foot in the door sort of to get some idea of kind of what it's all about?
0: Yeah, uh, for me, definitely. Uh, I, uh, you know, I wanted to learn more about it. I wanted to to be involved, and I immediately uh, resonated with the uh, with the regimented uh, lifestyle, the structure. At the time, I was also at a at a, a boys' Catholic college, which was uh, very structured and and had close ties with the military and the local reserve units. So all of that really, really resonated with with something that I was craving for as a, as a young boy.
2: So moving on from cadets. From that, you're inspired to sign up, and I believe was that during the HSC.
0: Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I loved army cadets uh, so much that I couldn't wait to to join. Uh, I know my my parents were probably pushing me to go to university and to to study science or and, and go on and have a career, but uh, the call to adventure was was too great, and, and the appeal to uh, to serve now uh, was 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 really strong. So uh, our local reserve unit. Uh, in in Goulburn was parading on Tuesday nights and I I figured that even while I was serving my HSC that I could squeeze that in in the afternoons so I I signed up started my application process which took a few months but uh, I was I was parading well before uh, the end of my first year uh, my last year in high school. How'd that
2: conversation go with your family?
0: Uh, I think I think it was fine Um, my mother particularly was always supportive of of me pursuing my interests, I think it. Uh, she saw it as an opportunity for me to gain some structure and 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 find some purpose in my life. So it was only part time at that stage, so uh, it wasn't a big commitment. But that that very quickly changed over over the following eighteen months, as as I spent more and more time at the the local reserve depot and uh, went away on exercises and, and activities uh, further and further abroad.
2: Did you go on training at the same time while doing the HSE?
0: The way the scheme works back then was uh, as a reserve enlistee, you could, you could parade at your depot before you completed your basic training uh, under strict supervision. But uh, in December that year, I, I went away to Kapuka and um, and I, I finished my, my basic training uh, shortly after sort of completing all of my HSE components uh, and started uh, in 2000, uh, early 2004 as a fully qualified trooper in corps.
2: Prior to signing up, it's memory that a lot of us have. Um, what can you
0: tell us of your memory of nine 11, September 11, 2001. I was just in high school uh, towards the the back end of my high school years. I remember waking up very early one morning would have been, I suppose, 12th of September in Australia, as the television was sort of resonating with the, with the, the effects and the impacts of still uh, unfolding. And it was, it was definitely the, the hum of talk, the conversation on, on the school bus, ride into, into high school. It's very clear and vivid in my mind now that, that that happening, and particularly as a young man, that there's this real uncertainty around what it meant and the implications. It was a big driver for me, I think, in in to late 2003 uh, and 2004 to, to then join the campaign in Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, that that call to action was what transitioned me from reserve service to full-time service was... There was, a, there was a desire for us to uh, support the war that was being fought in Afghanistan, and um, I was ready to answer that call.
2: So once you joined, after you finished all your, your HSC, you, you first became a Trooper Reservist, what can you tell us what you did um, at the local depot?
0: Yeah, I did everything, <laughs> uh, every every spare moment, and I had quite a few then as a, as a young man. Um, I, I, I spent at that depot putting my hand up for, for tasks uh, so uh, as as often as five times a week, I was down there for several hours a day servicing armored vehicles and and working on the on the latent fleet. I'm putting my hand up to to support full time army exercises as a as a sort of uh, enemy party or or a support staff. Um, I even committed to three months at that stage uh, to support the uh, Defence National Distribution Centre in the deep maintenance of the M113 fleet, uh, which was really engrossing and, and exciting experience to see that high level of, of maintenance and, and pulling apart. And I became uh, became a bit of a master of, of my craft there, uh, learning uh, stuff that I probably wouldn't normally learn as, a, as just a trooper um, and just immerse myself in every chance to become, to be involved in, in Armored Corps and, and working with armored vehicles. It's it really exciting.
2: When you initially signed up, did you have any sort of direction that you wanted to go
0: Armoured Corps or
2: anything in particular?
0: No, uh, fundamentally it was it was a marriage of convenience. The local depot was was Armoured Corps, and there were, there were quite a few uh, community friends uh, uh, who were serving there. So there was there was that that appeal. But I was I was embraced into the family very quickly, and I found a commonality with them. There were some other family members who were trying to steer me in different directions, but. Um, in the end, that 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 appeal to to deploy and 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 serve uh, as a young man was was too great, and and that's that's where I really found myself and found my identity. I think.
2: Have you got any key memories that you can share of your time there uh, as a reservist? As a reservist, or when you switched to full time service in two thousand and five?
0: Yeah, full full time service was a was a real roller coaster. Things things happened fast. Uh, reservist, I, I thought. Uh, I had lots of spare time, and I could I could sort of throw that towards my passion. But once I, sp- I pivoted to full time, my time uh, quickly evaporated, and uh, it was it was it was then army time, and trying to scratch out time for myself was was different. So I was deployed out in the field. Uh, I, I made lots of very good friends from all over Australia, who I still call close friends now. Whilst I was set on on going to Afghanistan and as, and supporting the the war on terror, then. I actually found myself rapidly deployed to East Timor and that that's probably uh, one of the most vivid memories of, uh, you know, there was this focus and this drive towards uh, this, this, this big threat in the Middle East. And then within 72 hours, we pivoted and turned to, to the local area of operations in East Timor, where there was a crisis happening. And um, yeah, the guys were deployed in, in 24 hours, they were loaded up on aircraft and flying over there. We were Loaded up on ships within seventy-two hours and and uh, and on the ground in in under a week, which was uh, was really exciting and uh, and interesting. My first time uh, working with the navy uh, was was driving onto the ship uh, to to go to East Timor, so um, it's it's very vivid.
2: What can you tell us of um, that time when you left the ship for the first time with the armored vehicles and you're in another country?
0: Wow, yeah, that was for for a young man. I think I would have been maybe 20 at that stage. Uh, it was it was a really, uh, really interesting and uh, overwhelming, sensorily uh, overwhelming. It was one of the first times that I'd actually been outside of Australia. Uh, I was on my own. The reality of what I was doing in the military was really, uh, really hitting me. And that first two weeks that we were in East Timor was just a, a blur. I, I don't think I barely slept I was wearing body armour constantly because there was a, at the time there was a very real threat that um, there was militia in, in the area. So uh, we were just doing everything we could with every waking moment to, to do good and make an impact. And uh, I think that that first two weeks that we were on the ground was, was really pivotal and we, we made a, a significant change because the remaining time that I spent in East Timor was was not as intense as those two weeks, which meant that we curbed that, that threat and, and we would made an impact. Uh, but the exposure to a different culture that was very close to ours and uh, a culture and, and a, a community of people that were in need, um, being faced with an impoverished nation that had its democratic, I don't know, it was, un, it was under threat. Yeah, it was, it was impactful, I think. And uh, it, it really seated with me that what I was doing was was meaningful. And um, I think it it drove me to the cause and to stay true to, to what I was doing.
2: What was it like being in an armored vehicle over there compared to operating around your local depot?
0: Some would say uh, excessive. Uh, so we were, we were in Vietnam era equipment, so a lot of it was uh, just barely sort of modern, I guess. Uh, but I, I, had a, I had a real passion for this workhorse, the M113. Like I said, I'd spent months learning its ins and outs and it was, uh, it was a role that, I, that I, I really enjoyed. It was a unique role in the military that it wasn't broadly employed then. And it allowed us to have a really significant presence in East Timor. We could quickly, uh, rapidly even, you would say, deploy to, and respond to different threats. We could mobilize uh, soldiers with relative protection. We were able to cross adverse terrain. Uh, and we were able to make a presence, uh, which was needed at that time. I recognised as as the campaign went on that real hard presence was was not needed, and we and we drew down very quickly. Back by the time I left East Timor, a lot of the armored vehicles were being pulled out, and that was only three or four months later. So it was uh, it was I think a necessary and impactful presence that uh, made me feel safe, and I think was was welcome at times uh, by by the local community because of the the impact that it made.
2: Were there any good or challenging memories that you can share about your deployment there?
0: Yeah, oh, well, the, I think the, the the first one is to recognise that these were 1970s era Vietnam historical pieces that were at the end of their life. So we often fought maintenance challenges. Uh, we broke down at the at the worst of times. We found it very difficult to get parts, and uh, we were often uh, jerry rigging bits and pieces. One situation I recall. Uh, there was an incident in the middle of the night where uh, a number of uh, flares were sent up to illuminate the the nighttime area. And as we mobilized the vehicles, um, I actually threw threw track on on my M13. My involvement in that response was was stymied from the outset. But um, a, a far greater threat rolled in because as the flares came to ground, they set fire to the to the paddock that I'd thrown track in. And there was this wall of fire sort of coming towards us as I rapidly tried to to put together the the bits and pieces of the the M113 so we could uh, move away from the threat. We were able to do that, knowing that you know, if if the fire had overwhelmed us, it would have been an even greater concern that a an M113 was burned, containing ammunition, and uh, you know it was it was slightly. Uh, a bit of a, a fast call incident, but we were able to fix the, the track under pressure. Uh, get out there and then use the M113 to help uh, subdue the fire, which was which was good. So all in all, it was a, it was a good result. But I, I remember pulling in all the skills of my training to 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 really perform under pressure.
2: So after you finished up your deployment to East Timor, then you moved on to Afghanistan.
0: Yeah, the, the two trips were almost back to back. Um, as I said, we 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 left the M113s. Uh, behind, they were they're at the end of their life. And uh, our team quickly mobilized and, and upskilled on a new platform, the protective mobility vehicle. So it was a new piece of equipment that was procured by defense uh, to respond to the improvised explosive device threats that were experienced in Afghanistan. And, and our team was one of the second conventional forces deployed to the Middle East in Terrancot on this platform. Our SOPs and TTPs were still being developed we're still learning the skills of our trade, coming from somewhere where we had decades of experience and, and a wealth of knowledge. Now we'll, we're expected to upskill and become masters of this new technology, this new platform under a completely different threat. Disaggregated asymmetric war, supporting Afghans uh, at that stage in the reconstruction task force, how we, how we rebuild Tarankot um, ourselves to, to set the conditions so that they can uh, do it them, themselves. So that was that was a really real rapid turnaround, but uh, fortunately for me, we deployed with a great infantry task group from the first first battalion, and some of the the guys that I worked with there uh, went on to do uh, phenomenally brave uh, and and dangerous things, uh, and we were intimately supporting them through that uh, that uncertain time. Uh, and those, again, those relationships, uh, would go on to be long serving professional relationships with, uh, with the first. battalion. Did you draw
2: any experiences from on your first deployment to Timor and then going to Afghanistan? Was there anything drawn from that experience that sort of helped you process and deal with the challenges and events that took place? Great question, Thomas.
0: I think there was a lot. I genuinely believe that if I'd been thrown straight into Afghanistan as my first deployment, it would have been a much more challenging experience for me because the threat was very real. It was omnipresent. It was unseen. Uh, In East Timor, it was much easier to sort of identify the threats and and draw the lines. Uh, In Afghanistan, it it was everywhere. It was all around you all the time. I was able to take on these new skills and challenges, I think, because I had a, a fairly good seating in in my craft and and what it was to be an Australian soldier deployed supporting local nationals. And the the problem that we're solving in Afghanistan wasn't uh, too dissimilar from the problem that we're solving in East Timor, and that we're helping local communities. We're engaging with them and that they, you know, they they were in a similar state of of dissonance, I guess. Their way of life was being broken down by this by this other force, militia force, who were trying to exert their will. So um, There were, I think there were a lot of things that I was able to carry across as an individual, but the scale was just significantly more. It was the distances we were covering were were greater. The threat was omnipresent. And then you add in this highly advanced understanding of of tactics, uh, asymmetric tactics, IEDs and ambushes and stuff, which it was a really learning experience. And I think we were very fortunate in our deployment uh, to come away as safe as we were um, we were able to to operate and return home uh, largely unscathed, uh, which not all rotations in Afghanistan can say.
2: Was there a big difference for yourself going between the two deployments you saw there?
0: Um, I think so. Um, my my role within the military, I think, was was more certain. I'd, I'd proven myself, I guess you could say, and by that stage, I was now one of the more senior soldiers. so I was taking leadership role and. Um, I was able to act autonomously and, and, and utilize initiative and I, I did spend a lot of time mentoring some of the newer soldiers who hadn't uh, served in, in East Timor and um, had, had, didn't have the long background that I had with, with the previous platform and one three. so everything was new to them. I was able to, uh, to liken some of the new TTPs and the training to, to what we'd already done and, and carry some of that across. So um, I think for me yeah there was there was a lot that I could I could bring to the party that was that was valuable. Every day was a challenge in Afghanistan. They're a new lesson to learn. Uh, the quiet days were always the best and the worst. Best because you could really enjoy the, the serenity and the beauty of the place. Uh, Afghanistan still to this day strikes me as one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Uh, the contrast between the desert and the mountains and and the lush green belts, uh, was breathtaking, uh, and I'll start with a with a great anecdote before I go to some of the more exciting ones. But uh, I remember uh, during one of our deployments, we were, we were postured in an overwatch position, um, and we had the entire company strung out there before we we're about to push down into one of our operations. And we're up on this finger in the middle of the desert. There was mountains, and uh, and below us was was the green belt. But that night. Uh, we had a full moon um, and it was strategically chosen because the infantry wanted to push in into the green belt under the light of the full moon but the moon was so big and so bright that um, it was like the middle of the day Um, we had shadows and uh, it was impossible for me to sleep uh, a because i was excited about the pending operation but b i was just taken away by the beauty of it all and um, that that moment uh, still resonates with me as, as one of the most serene and surreal experiences I've, I've had anywhere uh, at any time, but um, I suppose to to some of the more juicier stories. Um, uh, we one of our first uh, stri- uh, first times we struck out uh, from the FOB on an operation was we securing a bridge at one hour. Uh, one hour was conveniently one hour away from from the FOB, but it was spelled uh, spelled differently. Um, uh, the one hour bridge was a key crossing point across. Uh, one of the, the river systems there. And our job was to secure it uh, so we could conduct operations uh, forward and it and, and, and secure that key piece of terrain. Uh, the, the plan was to be there for about five days as we pushed uh, uh, other lines of operations forward. However, within the first 48 to 72 hours, the checkpoint was compromised by a suicide explosion. Uh, this uh, individual had, had bypassed some of our security screens and and managed to get themselves quite close to our position and detonated a a suicide device uh, uh, there in the checkpoint. Um, We were able to, to coordinate the events and, 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 and utilize our uh, tactics and techniques. And we got out of that uh, incident with only a minor injury. Um, But for me as, as a young man, that, that was like okay like the 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 mission's been compromised let's pack up and go home and find somewhere safe but the mission was to stay there for another four days and we had to secure that checkpoint so for the the remaining four days was was highly tense as we all feared uh, a recurrence of of that day's threat Uh, but everyone was highly professional Uh, we we secured that and maintained those lines of operations for another four days and, and came home safe without further incident um, and that was one of our first operations out of the gate that really set the tone for the for the combat team going forward that you can't let uh, a, you can't let your uh, your guard down for a second because the threat was everywhere uh, and and real. But also um, just because something happens doesn't mean that you can pack up your bags and go home. we're here, we're here to do a job. and and uh, you know, that 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 was uh, the mission came first. Um, so, uh, whilst it was a, a, it was a pretty powerful and significant event that um, still resonates with me today, uh, it really, I think, it, it, it seated within me that, uh, that that we're there for a purpose, and it really helped me uh, find courage later on when things got challenging.
2: How did you manage to decompress, not just yourself but everyone you worked with as well, after witnessing an event like that? How did you manage to get on top of
0: things and flush it all out? Great conversations with with. Uh, with all the guys, uh, humour just became a common tool that we used. Uh, I, I remember within hours of that incident, uh, walking over to one of my mates and having a chat with him about how close it was, and we were able to laugh over a cigarette and and, and a few minutes reprieve. Um, and and that I think that that laughter really helped us realise that we're in it for, in it for each other. But more broadly, after the incident and and for the months that I was deployed in Afghanistan, I, I committed a lot of time to to personal fitness and and every spare moment that i could get to to decompress i uh, i put my headphones in and I, i'd uh, choose choose a piece of music and 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 just uh, and and work it out exercise it out and i uh, spent a lot of time uh, pounding the pavement around the base of towering um, running and, and and decompressing that way and i found that a really great strength for me. Uh, when i when I was stressed or confused uh, to to take control of, of of something within myself.
2: You mentioned before that um, on your deployment, on the second one that you took more of a sort of mentor role, mentoring the the juniors and the the new people that this was probably their first deployment as well. Did that play a part into your next posting?
0: At that stage i, I was I was set within myself. I wanted to be a, a recruit instructor. Uh, that was something that I was I was very passionate about at that point. I now had a degree of experience. I felt like I had something to give back. I wanted to become a recruit instructor. Unfortunately, because of a number of factors, that that wasn't on my cards. It wasn't on my posting cycle, but I was I was blessed with getting a, a posting at the School of Armour, where it wasn't quite recruit instruction, but I was able to to really provide that the trade expertise of of the lessons I'd learned uh, and give back. I had experience as an M one one three crewman. Which was a still um, a skill set that we were, we were maintaining and supporting the infantry in their adoption of the infantry fighting vehicle. I had obviously the PMV experiences, which was a very unique skill set. And at that stage, I think largely rested with transport uh, and, and infantry. So I was able to contribute there. And, uh, and I was, uh, had a number of dismounted uh, skills as well. So I, I spent a lot of time becoming an expert cavalry scout. And, and training and, and supporting our dismounted soldiers uh, and giving them the context of, of east team or in afghanistan and and working with armored vehicles which was which was really rewarding uh throughout that whole three-year posting uh, i was able to then add another tool set to my belt as well and i, I upskilled and became qualified on the aslav uh, platform which was something that i hadn't i hadn't picked up and was a, a requirement of my trade as a cavalryman. and i spent hours out of the range honing my, my gunnery craft and becoming an expert marksman uh, with the outside platform and I really enjoy those those times where I could just go out and shoot and become better proficient at myself at my own individual skills.
2: How did you find the change of pace going from the, your deployments
0: to then being an instructor? Well there was there was no change of pace uh, being an instructor is a full-time job it was intense uh, we were often required to to quickly uh, mobilize and switch between different responsibilities, supporting field deployments, uh, training, and, and soldiers in training, uh, that they, they work at a, at a high tempo. So the instructors have to work at an even higher tempo. I jest in slight because there was a good amount of time for me to focus on my family and and focus on myself outside of ours because I was able to go home and spend time with them. In fact, that was the time that uh, my partner and I decided that we wanted to start a young family. So. Uh, Pukopanya was a great uh, place for us to to have that communication and build a community with with friends who were at about a similar stage in their life. But it didn't stop. Uh, the mission still came first. Uh, when my son was born, uh, I was actually out on, on an exercise and I was given 72 hours to come back, see the birth of my son, hold him for the first time and then hand him to my mother-in-law before I uh, I went back outfield and finished the exercise. Uh, because uh training doesn't stop. We need to uh, uh, support the, the operational continuum. <laughs> that was challenging. But um, uh, again, I, I still I wear that as a badge of pride because my partner was able to really uh, demonstrate her resilience and her ability to overcome challenges then as well. Uh, that's been a great strength throughout our, our relationship and the rest of my career.
2: At what point did you decide to prepare yourself for the next challenge by going to RMC Duntroon?
0: This was a, a seed that was planted by one of my uh, officer commanding. Uh, before I went to the School of Armour, uh, he he planted the seed in my in my brain. He said, "You should you should do this. You should consider this." And the whole time I was at the School of Armour, it was it was uh, something that I was uh, mulling over and chewing over. And in the end, uh, it it became uh, a point where I I reflected on my career as a as a soldier, and I, I realized I'd, I'd done I'd done just about everything I, I could do. Um, there was a, a few, certainly a few things I could I, I, I could pursue, but um, I'd, I'd had a pretty good experience as a as a junior soldier, and and be, uh, the transition to officer would allow me to continue to give back and and contribute to to the the, the soldiers and 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 the military community. So uh, when I was recommended to go to RMC, it was uh, I was I was relieved that other people saw that in me as well. And uh, I, I went on to the, I suppose, the next challenge uh, in my career, which was changing from a digger mindset to an officer mindset. And it's a real, it's a real mind switch.
2: What can you tell us about that adaptation of being a digger, then going through RMC to be a staff cadet?
0: Well, it, it started with one of the greatest challenges I think in, in my life, which was I had to go back to basics. Uh, at that, at that stage, the Royal Military College uh, didn't uh, wanted. To form this cohort mentality, where we had shared experiences, and it, I understood that, but doing it was was much much harder. Uh, I'd already been through Kapuka and I'd deployed, and I had these this wealth of experiences. So going back to basics and learning how to march again, and and doing things by numbers was was a great personal challenge for me. And there are a number of other uh, ex-serving soldiers in my cohort who uh, it was too much for them. That that challenge of of, of resetting yourself and going back to basics was too much for them, and uh, they didn't want to, to to do that. But in the end, I got a lot of value out of again uh, being able to mentor uh, new new soldiers who came through the continuum. I was able to lend my experiences uh, when when things were challenging, and I was able to to really challenge myself, my my humility, and 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 test whether or not I actually did know the basics. So um, it was, and I think it was a good mental reset for me. To say, well, that that ends my soldier career, and from here on, this is my officer career, which I think was particularly necessary because I ended up choosing to come back to Armoured Corps. Uh, not not initially my plan. I I, I was considering uh, some of the other options that friends and family had recommended for me, and I thought this is my chance to to spear out and explore those new horizons. But in the end, the call to Armor Corps uh, was too great and. In particular it was it was the the call of the M1 Abrams tank that that was loudest of all, the great beasts on the battlefield that I'd seen and worked with side by side, but it was not something that I had the the pleasure of of experiencing. So I, I chose to graduate in, uh, to become a, a tank troop leader, which was I, I don't think I could have made a better choice. that was that was phenomenal. It was really great and I really enjoyed every experience I had as a, as a young troop leader within the the tank stream.
2: Are there any um, good memories or challenges that you can share of your time at RMC?
0: Well, RMC is a very unique environment um, and it is fraught with challenges. Probably the, the greatest challenge for me was the challenge within myself to be critical and introspect. Uh, I don't think I'd, I'd spend a lot of time on introspection and, and recognising who I was as a leader and as a, as a team player I just I just been a digger and done what I was told to do. Now I was I was being asked to create my own uh, leadership statements and 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 understand who I was as a person. So that was that was really challenging for me. And I had I had quite a lot of conflicts with my peers about about that uh, search for for a new identity, as I tried to shed the the digger Gareth and and move on to to a young junior leader who was a peer um, and. Uh, sometimes I tried to run too fast and uh, leave some of my peers behind. And uh, while that worked for, for me as an individual, it wasn't, wasn't the right outcome for the team. That challenge within myself, I think, was the greatest lesson I learned. And I made a lot of really good friendships out of stopping and, and, and focusing on how I can be a better team player and be a bit more true to myself. So
2: when you became a troop leader, did you work with anyone you'd previously worked with before?
0: Uh, fortunately, because I'd chosen the tank stream as opposed to going back to cavalry, uh, not as many uh, as you would expect. A lot, And a lot of them that I did uh, meet again were, were senior soldiers or officers within the stream. So the, the conflicts weren't significant uh, on a personal level. There were a number of individuals who I'd worked with from the School of Armour and, and through my career who I, I did cross paths with and there may have been uh, some personal challenges on both sides to to overcome those preconceptions, uh, but largely um, the professionalism of of the soldiers that I worked with and my ability to, uh, based on those lessons that I learned at RMC, to to identify with the person, I think, uh, allowed me to to really uh, overcome those those challenges and and seek the best outcome. A lot of the good senior soldiers that I worked with leveraged that. They said, "Look." Sir, so you know what it was like to be a, a soldier. So let's let's consider this with, the, with that in mind. And I appreciated that reminder that um, I could add those experiences to my leadership and not, not be brought down to the, be a digger, but empathise with them uh, through experiences.
2: So following your time as a troop leader, what was next for you?
0: I wrapped up my time as a troop leader, tank commander uh, at 2nd Cavalry Regiment there was a chance for me to promote into a 2IC position and and make way for the future troop leaders to take up the the reins in that position. A lot of them uh, took up that challenge with with the promise that they were going to deploy on Operation Taji, which was one of the later operations to the Middle East. Uh, And I felt at that stage that I had had my chance to deploy and Served my operational experience. My my family was now at a, at a time where they were really appreciating my my attention and time. So I embraced that two IC role, uh, second in command, and and said and and made way for those junior leaders to take that 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 step in their command. What that meant was basically the whole of Second Cavalry Regiment deployed, and it was left with only a handful of soldiers who were unable to deploy or had much like me sort of chosen to to take up those supporting roles and and, and not deploy there was a general feeling particularly because most of the people who couldn't deploy were because of physical restrictions or, or employment restrictions there was this feeling of being left behind which was palpable it was it was really hard for the guys who were left behind and in my in my role I, I Spent a lot of time investing in these people to try and help them stay focused and, and seek purpose. Uh, many of them were bro- uh, physically broken and had rehabilitation programs. Uh, many of them were looking at, at transitioning out of defence and they were faced with diverse and, and numerous uh, personal challenges. Their relationships at times were fractured uh, and their sense of self and identity was also fractured. It was really difficult. And this was a new challenge that I could see, that I could lean into and, and grow as well. Uh, a very valuable challenge to help Armored Corps soldiers move to the next stage of, of their careers and their lives. Uh, so I uh, assumed the, the role of uh, Rear Details Welfare Officer, uh, required me to learn a lot about the medical process, a lot about the transition process. It also started, I suppose, the thought in myself that at one stage uh, I'd be in the same situation as them. So I'd be lying if I said that there wasn't also a personal drive to understand this process so I, I could help myself if, if the time came when I had to transition out of defence. And I, I spent a lot of time immersing myself in that transition piece and in that investing in, in people piece. I remember times when I was working with veterans and uh, like named sort of individuals from the core who who had this reputation and this uh, almost all like presence within the corps, which their experiences who were now faced at the end of, of their journey and didn't know what was next didn't know what to do and uh, here I was a a barely 30 year old young junior officer trying to give 45 50 year old men life advice on on what comes next and more often than not it was as a shared journey rather than me actually telling them what they should or shouldn't do.
2: Prior to that, had you had any idea of sort of having that welfare experience to share and mentor um, other people or help guide people on their journey of kind of facing that the door and going, okay, what do I do?
0: What options are there ahead of me? I think it's a it's a requisite of all leaders in defence to have a, an understanding of that and have a, a a desire to help and and get the most out of people. Uh, the military system uh, spends a lot of time on on personnel management and uh, and good leaders uh, spend a lot of their time there. Uh, there's a, There's a saying that one percent of your workforce will consume ninety nine percent of your your time and effort, and that's because it's worth it. people are, are definitely worth it. So, as I grew as a junior leader, I think more and more of myself resonated with that that desire to help, the guys who couldn't help themselves.
2: What was next for you after being the unit welfare officer?
0: There's a particular career path that the junior officers need to follow. And I was driven to taking up a posting at the Royal Military College. That's that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to be an instructor. Um, I, I saw that as a, as a great feather in my cap. But in order to align my posting cycles and make sure that I was, uh, I'd filled out my my career Sort of milestones. the next posting for me was I uh, was actually within the second division as an officer supporting a reserve unit. It's one of the full-time uh, members working for a part-time unit, which offered a whole new raft of challenges. I thought by that stage i I, I knew all there was to know about leadership, and i was I was I was pretty au okay, fa, but I'm glad I, I served that posting because our reserve workforce um, is a completely different uh, entity with their own needs and drives and, and motivations and, and I saw um, I saw a side of, of the contingent workforce that uh, I, I think I'd undervalued as a full-time member. They were always there, yes, uh, and I know they did good work and i would worked alongside them on multiple deployments but I didn't appreciate all the hard work they put in to get there. Uh, these guys were working full-time jobs and then in their spare time committing to serve the Defence Force. That that takes significant effort and commitment. And the challenges that they face are are many. They're often under-resourced, they're often um, understaffed, uh, and they're they're often time poor, but they still manage to make that time and and make that commitment. So my role there within the Second Division was to help them as best I could do what they need to do and Pull away the governance barriers and 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 create the opportunities for them to to do great work. It was a challenge. It was a challenge every day to to do that because the reserve workforce is not the priority. Deployments and operational uh, forces are the priority. They get they get their lion's share. So it was doing the impossible with with very little. But their their motivation and passion really uh, made that job rewarding and and a pleasure to do.
2: During your time with the reservists. This is the time that you also became involved with with you with me.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd heard about with you with me uh, actually before leaving second second uh, cavalry regiment when I was working with soldiers transitioning out and I'd been engaged with them. I'd heard the name and I was curious to know more. This was this seemed like a great opportunity to help soldiers transition into uh, into a new career. So I've been doing some research and I've been engaging. Uh, different people and with you with me at that stage was was still uh, was still a pretty new name as I served within the second vision I heard more and more about them they're becoming more active they had a number of talent expos uh, around Australia and I made the effort to, to get involved to learn more about them and find more uh, find out more and I became immediately attracted to the mission this idea of solving underemployment within veterans. And it resonated with me. And straight away, I, I started formulating ways that, that the army could be more involved and, I, and how we could use the reserve force to better be engaged through, uh, there was a number of other initiatives and I was trying to align partnerships. I reached out to, to the With You With Me community. And I said, look, I want to be part of this mission. I want to be involved. They, at that stage, it was a pretty young initiative. And unless I was... Uh, wanting to take up a career in technology that it wasn't particularly space for them in that model, so I continued doing the good work, I guess, while I wore the uniform and and communicating all the all the the value of this of this program as as far and as broadly as I could. In the background, I suppose, motivated by the reservists that I saw who were able to work full time and still commit to things that they were passionate about, I started training in technology and and getting some of the skills that with you with me offered. Uh, free to, to the veterans community and I'm I skilled in robotics process automation. I did some cyber training. I did some data training and, and started to explore these technology opportunities. And, and I was championing it back to the workforce saying, hey, look, here's a, here's a great chance for us to use these future technologies to help the Army see outcomes. I was absolutely impassioned to try and help the Army utilize this resource in the best way it could. Um, I say Army, but I think the Defence Force uh, across the whole, because when it came down to it and I, I did eventually transition out of defence, uh, once once I was, I, I'd served my 15 years and I'd come to a natural transition point, I think I engaged with the Navy in helping them uh, support their robotics process automation journey through, through the skills that I'd used and I took up a role there and uh, the Navy is certainly leading the way in that in that innovation uh, piece. They've got a lot of great uh, technologies and skills on the horizon as they try and make the most of their workforce. So it's not a unique Army problem. It's Defence Force-wide is going through a technological change and that's, that's great and exciting. But I, I think I'm getting a little ahead of myself.
2: So after your time with 2Div, then you, on your pathway to becoming an RMC instructor, you then became a career advisor. After your time there, then you got to finally where you're working towards uh, being an instructor at RMC. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, instructor at RMC. Uh, I think I've said this about every single posting, but uh, it was one of the most rewarding and challenging postings of my career. I'd finally made that milestone that I had been driving for since I becoming a junior officer. It meant that I had to be an expert in my craft. It meant that I had to uh, invest in people always. And it meant that I had to work uh, really, really hard uh, across a, a, a new and uh, complex skill set. I worked really, really hard at RMC until the end of March. Three months, uh, I, was, I was instructing there on, on a whole broad skill set in second uh, second class. And then in March 2020, COVID struck. As it struck the world. In fact, for us, we were deployed out on a field exercise, one of the one of the training milestones for the second class cadets there, and we came back to COVID. We'd been in a bit of a bubble, just to focus on our internal training, and we came back to toilet paper shortages and lockdowns and and a whole new way of doing business, and it was all uncertain. Training was moving from face to face to virtual, and uh, no one really knew what the future would hold. I was immediately removed from from instructor duties and responsibilities as that changed and, and deployed on the COVID-19 response task force uh, uh, in, in the ACT or the federal government. That meant that I worked at the Royal Military College of Australia headquarters uh, helping develop the contingency plans and the future plans for what instructing at RMC would look like. That meant that I, I went and worked at the ACT or federal government headquarters on contingency and operation planning for future deployment of defence forces in support of COVID response, and then it meant that I got to to the National Indigenous Australians Agency to help them protect uh, the most vulnerable uh, of our of our remote communities um, and help them manage the way that they spin up these these short notice task force and responses. Very very challenging role because everything was uncertain and. Uh, I was working with joint forces and federal government people and and civilians and uh, in in areas that I was absolutely not an expert in, but uh, working very, very hard for for very meaningful outcomes. It was a challenge that I don't think that I could have ever been prepared for. But um, if I enjoyed every day being able to contribute to supporting the the national response to this new and emerging threat, uh, a lot of hard work. um, But completely disrupted my my dream posting at RMC, it took me away. And when I finally came back from that COVID response task force, the landscape had completely changed. A lot of my contingency plans were in action. We were operating virtually, we were training differently. Uh, some soldiers were, were, were held out in the field because it, it meant that we could get meaningful instruction and training. So um, it was a it was a different landscape. Um, and I was I was really tired. 15 years sort of ticked over. And I felt like it was a good a milestone as anything. I'd, I had plenty of feathers in my cap. I had I'd done just about everything, and I don't think there's much more uh, you could ask for in a in a 15 year career. Uh, so I, I took I took six months long service leave to find myself and take a breather, uh, with the intention of at that stage coming back as an instructor at RMC uh, in uh, 2021. It would have been during those six months. I. Developed a new routine, lots of gym, lots and lots of gym. I uh, spent two or three hours a day at the gym, investing in myself, reading broadly philosophy and, and books and spending lots of time with my kids who uh, throughout my 15-year career had seen snippets of me and, and seen me focused on work. So this was a chance for me to focus on them.
2: You achieved a lot in your 15 years. Mm. When was it time that you're like, okay, I'm actually thinking it's time to sort of stop going full-time and start tapering things back even more?
0: The thought process probably started in about 2017. So uh, the, the planning for the future, uh, setting the milestones and, and making sure the conditions were set. September that year, so three months into my long service leave, that I got the opportunity to support the Digital Navy project with RPA and uh, I took the opportunity with with about a week's, week's consideration. I'd worked with soldiers who didn't have a transition plan. I'd worked with soldiers who faced with this opportunity and, and a lot of decisions to be made in short succession. It was at that stage that I'd set in my mind the milestones that I wanted to achieve. And by the time uh, September 2020 come around, I was able to, to go through and say, yeah, I've achieved everything I wanted to achieve. I've set the conditions for this transition. I've got the skill sets I need. Here's a job opportunity that I can transition to. It's a meaningful career with an organization that, that resonates with my values. I'd spent some time on self-reflection and self-introspection. And I, I knew what I valued. I valued spending time with my children. I valued investing in humans and digital technology innovation. So everything was there for me to make that decision. So to say that I only took a week's consideration to make that decision transition, I think is is a bit of a misleading statement. I've been thinking about it for about five years at that stage or well, four years. I had a plan and the conditions were set, so it was it was just validation that this was the right decision for me. It wasn't some golden opportunity. It actually involved a cut in in my pay, but it was a meaningful transition, and that that was that's the key that I say for people is don't expect that there's going to be this golden basket opportunity. You've got to go for the the work that you would do anyway, the work that you, you see purpose and, and drive because that's what's going to get you out of bed every morning. And this project with the Navy was, was something that I saw had outcomes at Career Management Agency. It's, it's a project that I saw had outcomes at the contingent workforce level. It's, it's a project that I saw had outcomes in the future of the Defence Force as a whole. So all those things, I wanted to be a part of the project. So uh, I, I probably would have done it for free if I could, because it was a really, really exciting innovation project where instead of just saying, well, that's the way we've always done business. We're saying, well, no, this is the way we can do business. After 12 months of supporting the Navy project, I, I was looking for more involvement with with you, with me, and, and now I stepped into a new role, a customer success executive. And that role means that I get to place veterans into opportunities like that every day. I, I get to connect with veterans, military spouses, neurodiverse people, uh, the the marginalized and under underrepresented within the workforce, and connect them with meaningful work every single day. And I absolutely love that, and I'm so glad that I get the privilege of that. Uh, after the experiences that I've had, to connect veterans with with great opportunities and, and put them into meaningful work. How would someone get involved with with you with me? Good question, Thomas. With you with me is is a social impact company. Our underlying mission statement is to solve underemployment in these marginalized groups, and to do that. We connect with these, these diversity groups and give them access to training and career opportunities for free. We put the costs onto the, onto the workforce. We put the costs onto, onto industry to solve this problem. So for, for veterans particularly, all of our training and all of these career opportunities are absolutely free. It's, it's people like me who uh, engage with these communities, veterans, and help them find those opportunities in, in career. And uh, to date, I've put I couldn't count how many veterans I put into, into great opportunities in technology where they probably never would have considered, but well, because we give them the training for free and we connect them with these industries who are looking for them to to employ them meaningful work across all of our partners who really appreciate the potential that veterans have. The best place to start is to is to look up with you with me. That's, that's where I started, was I, I just heard about it and I looked it up. And the more I looked into it, the more I got involved, the the more I found valuable and rewarding. Encourage anyone, if you're, if you're asking, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Happy to connect you with, with opportunities and, and training and answer any of your questions because this is something that I'm very passionate about. I always have been, particularly for veterans, in helping them find um, a meaning after service.
2: Gareth, thank you for your service and the work that you're doing in the veteran space. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, I'm Thomas Kay, and you've been listening to Life on the Line.
1: Our thanks go to Gareth and with you with me for the interview. Be sure to look up the company online. For more stories of cavalry veterans, you can listen to some of our older episodes. In season one, number three, Garth Callender.
2: A bomb which was in a car parked on the side of the road detonated as we went past. So we were within a few metres of the bomb that that went off.
1: And in season three, number 58, Kane
2: Hall. I just remember driving and... Suddenly, there was an orange flash. Everything went black. Smoke burning my nostrils, lungs, everything. And this feeling of my body being compressed and this instant feeling of guilt. Oh, fuck. What did I just do? What happened? And number
1: 62, Oliver Andrews.
2: I say I checked out mentally. I just became
1: a depressive, angry wreck. For more about the COVID-19 Task Force, you can listen to our Season 4 bonus episode. COVID-19 Task Force with John Froen.
0: Unfortunately, with what's been going on in Victoria, we're now right back to very intense activities. This is very much a fight on the home front.
1: Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at pod, and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thank you for listening. And lest we forget.